You are listening to a Laison Lumineur podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Laison Lumineur. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. This occasional series records our lectures and gallery talks, insights from new publications, and interviews with collectors and scholars. Our aim is to offer an ever-wider public tools for learning about the diversity of our activities and the breadth of our interests. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello, this is Sandra Hindman. I'm here in Chicago. Today, we are talking with Mark Montefusco in New York, and Mark is the uh, managing horticulturist at the Met Cloisters, where there is a medieval garden. Mark, let me introduce you. Hi, Sandra. So, um, how does one even become the gardener at the cloisters. Many of our listeners won't know there is such a position available, or it was available. The easy answer to how I became the gardener at the cloisters is um, really a lot of luck. Uh, the um, position is one of three horticultural positions at the cloisters, at the Met Cloisters, and uh, it was advertised in uh, a lot of the traditional horticultural professional outlets and um, as I say I just I lucked out it was an, an, an exciting and almost unbelievable opportunity and uh, just, but you must be a gardener by training or a horticulturist by training how does one train well, I've I've been a number of different things uh, when I got out of college I spent some time at the Smithsonian and some time at the Library of Congress in roles that were totally unrelated to horticulture and then I went into essentially video and audio production for high-tech applications and uh, kept on wanting to go back to my roots. I had taken some botany courses in college and I had always considered myself a gardener and a kind of a serial obsessionist when it came to plants and uh, about 20 years ago started pursuing largely as a self-taught person of a career in horticulture and uh, and as I say, and I'm incredibly lucky to have wound up here at the Met Cloisters. Now, were you a gardener at other museums or gardens? Uh, what would what would the curriculum vitae for the gardening part look like for a someone at the Met Cloisters garden? Well, we've had we've had a number of different people in in my position with varying backgrounds, from kind of all out medieval scholars. To people with very practical backgrounds and then me who has a much more eclectic background my own experience of gardening was gained mainly out in the field beginning with my own collection running a small garden center slash nursery for a while uh, then becoming head gardener at a long island estate and then at another estate in upstate new york working as horticulturist for a golf course i've picked up a lot of a lot of different bits and pieces of knowledge in, in a lot of different ways many other horticulturists will actually go through a four-year program or a two-year program and uh, come out with degrees and cert- certificates in horticulture but uh, i did not choose that path now i've been in the um, cloisters of course as a medievalist it's essentially required 
And for those of our listeners who may not know, of course, the Cloisters is a reconstruction of a medieval monastery. And the cloister is the part sort of in the center where the monks would have gone and meditated, talked, read, wandered around. Now, I think that's, I've been in your garden too. I think that's only one of the three of your gardens. Can you explain where the medieval garden is in the Met Cloisters? Sure. The cloisters are constructed, or the, or the, the cloisters, the Met Cloisters Museum is constructed as a kind of a, an amalgam of castle and church or cathedral. And it was designed to incorporate architectural elements from different sites in Europe. And when you come here for the first time, you don't realize that all these different disparate elements from all these different cloisters and chapels across Europe started out in entirely different places. It all works so well together. At the heart of the building, however, is one of three cloister gardens in the museum. And the, the one that most people think of instantly is, the pronunciation's um, open to some discussion, but uh, I call it the Kuxa Cloister Garden. It's C-U-X-A, and it's completely surrounded by the museum. Yeah, it's named so, for a Spanish monastery. Kuxa is yes. a famous Spanish monastery. Yes, and um, uh, parts of the, the arcade surrounding the cloister have been reconstructed, but a lot of it is originally from the original cloister in, in Spain. In Europe, I'm not 100% certain it's in Spain, but I am not, I am not a medievalist. So it, in, in a way, it's interesting that this garden performs the same function that the cloistered gardens in the monasteries of Europe performs, which is that it offers this oasis of peace and this opportunity for contemplation in the center of one of the busiest and largest cities in the world. And you can see it from the exhibition galleries of the cloisters yes. as well. Yes. The, the combination of original architecture and guard is probably unique in this country and certainly unusual throughout the world. The, the gardens were conceived of as part of the museum from its inception. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yes. Uh, the, 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 the museum began as a, as a collection of statuary and other artifacts assembled by a private individual named uh, Barnard, George Barnard, I think. And in the 30s, the, the, Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, acquired the collection and with the help of the Rockefeller family, built this facility and um, built it to incorporate all these different architectural elements, but also built it so that the gardens would be able to essentially communicate literally and figuratively with the objects in the collection. And so there were medieval-like flowers and plants right from the start, too, in the 30s? Yes. Yes. And and on the one hand, when you start researching, and I'm really at the very beginnings of my research into medieval gardening, when you start researching medieval gardening, the first thing you realize is how little we know about medieval gardens. And then you start looking into the literature and looking into the incredible amount of research that's gone into uh, analyzing different artworks. And then you think, wow, we actually know quite a bit about medieval gardening. We have three different gardens, and each garden 
fulfills really a different function. Yeah, I know. I, I read about the three gardens. I mean, yes. I'm not sure I know. I mean, I know the one that you call the Kuksa Garden, right. which right. is right off of the galleries. But right. explain what the other two are for, for me and for our listeners. The, the other two gardens are, we are called the Bonifant Garden and the Tree Garden. T-R-I-E, and they're both named after the, the cloistered monasteries from which the architectural elements were taken. They face, both of those gardens face south. They are at the top of the uh, very imposing stone walls that surround the entire uh, Met cloisters. And they, one, the Bonifant Garden is primarily a practical garden in the sense that it would have plants that were used for food, for medicine, for crafts, for artistic purposes, in some cases for uh, magic. And the other garden, the tree garden, has a very special function. It is designed to reflect the flora depicted in probably our most famous uh, uh, artwork, which is uh, the unicorn in captivity, which is one of the very famous unicorn tapestries. And our goal is to recreate that wonderful background of of mixed flowers that appears in the in the tapestry in the garden itself well that's so interesting i mean you said we don't know much about medieval gardens uh, or gardening but of course we know a lot about medieval flowers from visual and i'm a manuscript um specialist and manuscript evidence uh, flowers in the margins of ghent bruges manuscripts you mentioned flowers in textiles and tapestries of course too the wonderful thing is that in many cases particularly in the tapestries and and in some of the illuminated manuscripts the artists were so accurate that today botanists can look at these works of art and say, oh yes, that's such and such, that's such and such, with, with, a, with a very high degree of certainty. So yes, we do know a lot about the plants. Now, um, yeah, the plants. I wanted to ask you about some of the plants. Now, not all the plants are ones that we would be quite familiar with, are they? Are some of them brought, like I remember the last time I was in the Kuksa Garden, I thought, and it was spring, and I saw some flowers that I'd never seen before. I took some pictures, and I went to my gardener in Italy, and I said, I want these flowers. And he just rolled his eyes, and, you know, I was like, really? I don't think so. So, Well, your question raises two interesting points. One is that a lot of the plants that now we consider to be weeds, one of the great examples being dandelions, were very important in medieval gardening. They served as food sources. They served as uh, the basis for alcoholic beverages. And we are, we are surrounded now by all these imported European weeds, as we call them, without realizing that um, many, if not all of them, had a real role to play in the everyday life of pretty much anyone in, in medieval society, from the very uh, humblest to the highest. So dandelions are not a New World plant? They're an import? No, No, they are an import. Really? Yes. Hmm. And, of course, you you know the derivation of the common name, the dandelion. No, I don't think so. Tell me. It's, it's, and my French is terrible, but it's dandelion. Oh, of course. Yeah. And if you look at the leaves, 
and turn them sideways, they look like the teeth. <laughs> if, if you have a good imagination, they look like the teeth of the lion. Yeah, that's right. Dent de lion. Dent, uh, teeth of the lion. Yes, right. right. Uh-huh. I'm, glad, I'm glad one of us has a good French accent. <laughs> um, but the other side of things is that a lot of the plants that were grown in medieval gardens have been improved upon and hybridized out of all recognition. And one of the exciting things that we do here at the Met Cloisters Gardens is to seek out original forms of these plants. And many times they're only available as seeds. We can't go to our hmm. local nursery and, and buy these things. So we have a, a, an on-site propagation program that specializes in finding these hard-to-find or, in some cases, you know, almost completely unknown seeds and germinating the plants and growing them on and then putting them out in our gardens. Hmm. And they bloom, uh, is one of the goals to keep the garden blooming year-round with different kinds of uh, things? Or um, can I only see, you know, the garden in its full bloom for a couple of months in the summer? Well, that's a, that's a really excellent question. We have, um, I began my tenure here on March the 2nd, and I had exa exactly 10 days. Not before. good timing, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. But um, even when I got here in March, there were things to look at in the garden. And this year is a little unusual. We had such a mild winter, and we've had such a gradual, really, from a, from a plant standpoint, a very good spring. We've had things in flower, and we've had points of interest from the day I got here. And we will continue to have things in flower and, and items of interest, certainly through November. And uh, with a, go ahead, Sarah. No, no, go ahead. So we're not specifically trying to create a four-season garden, but as it turns out, many of the plants that were used in medieval gardens have four-season interest. Yeah, and most of Europe from where your plants come is probably a little milder than a New York winter. You know, someplace like even northern Italy is about two months ahead of um, of New York for its planting season. Yes, I understand, though, that although you arrived in the beginning of March, um, your job is, was considered an essential one, and you were and are able to go into the garden um, that you are the custodian of um, at least a couple of days a week. Is that right? That, uh, that's correct. I, um, I like to joke that it's the first time in my life that I've been considered essential for anything. <laughs> right. But uh, I, I am considered an essential employee, and we made the decision to have as much presence in the garden as possible because for two reasons. The garden is a collection of living organisms, and it's a, kind of a living entity in and of itself. And if it is not tended, then it will become something other than we want it to be. Gardens have a serving tendency to do things that you don't necessarily want or expect them to do. And one of my maxims is the garden that you leave in the evening is not the same garden that you come back to in the morning. And if you multiply that by weeks or months, and we don't know how long um, it's going to be before we're allowed to have um, visitors back, if, if someone wasn't here taking care of that garden, there would be, it would be, how should I put it, that discontinuity would affect the garden and it would affect the garden for a long period of time. And the other reason we decided to have somebody on site is that when we do open, we want that garden to be 
exactly the kind of oasis and inspiration that we were talking about before, and that requires work too. Yeah, I want to go back to the idea of the plant, the specific plants, and then sure. the and then the kind of construction of the garden in which they are. And, you know, I understand that some of the plants, you're trying to replicate plants that come from the Middle Ages, etc. But what about the look of it? Like, you know, for example, how is a medieval garden, um, the way they're arranged, that is, different from, say, a cottage garden, which sort of, when I was last in the cloisters, I thought, oh, this is kind of like a cottage garden. You've put your finger on an important point. As I mentioned, we have three gardens, and one of them, the Bonifant Garden, was intended to be a very practical garden. And in addition to planting the kinds of plants that would have been really essential for life in the Middle Ages, we've also picked up the aesthetic. Uh, we have these low fences made out of willow called wattle, uh, which oh, was they, actually made, yes. made for us over in England and shipped over here. So we, we've tried to capture that, that aesthetic in that garden. And really, it is a cottage garden. That's exactly what it's intended to, to duplicate. Because in medieval times, having a garden wasn't um, a luxury. It wasn't uh, something you did because you were bored or had you know time on your hands. It was a necessity. And yeah, you used it for, exactly. you know, you used it for food, you used it for medicine. Uh, yeah. so. And you used it to eat. Uh, so we, we've, we've tried to, we've, we've, I think we've hit a very nice balance of, about making it, between making the gardens attractive and making the gardens realistic and representative of what a medieval garden would have contained. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned a little already about um, the relationship between the garden, not just the flowers and medieval flowers or the type of garden and how they gardened in the Middle Ages, but also the relationship between the garden and the flowers to artworks in the collection. And I know one of the obvious ones is the unicorn tapestry, but how else does the cloister garden, cloister gardens, how, in what other ways do they relate to the art in the collection, or isn't that really the point? It is, it is certainly one of the points, and I think some people would argue that it's the main point. The depiction of flowers and the depiction of plants, in, in, and I have, to, I have to back up and say, I'm not an expert in this by any stretch of the imagination, but I've, I'm, I'm a quick learner and I'm absorbing a tremendous amount from these amazing people that I'm surrounded with here. But the, the function of plants and flowers in medieval art can be divided roughly into, into two halves. And one is they're decorative. Flowers are pretty. Plants make great architectural elements. It's just easy to appropriate those wonderful natural designs and carve them into stone or wood or paint them. But the other side of it is that many flowers and plants had very important symbolic roles in medieval life and belief. And one of the things that we do here is try to focus on some of those plants. For example, there are, there are plants that are associated with the veneration of the Virgin Mary that are, that are symbolic of Mary. Like irises, right? Irises, and we ha- it's a win-win situation. We can put an iris in the garden and say this is one of the plants that was symbolic of the of, uh, veneration of the Virgin Mary. And at the same time, we have a great-looking flower out there, too. Right. Flowers, uh, excuse me, iris, roses, uh, lilies, and uh, uh, violets were all uh, emblematic of, of Mary. 
or attributes of Mary in her art. Strawberries, so really, too, I think, maybe. Uh, yes, I, I haven't heard that, but I, I'm perfectly willing to believe it. <laughs> but it's, so it's, it's really fun for us to be able to find these symbolic relationships and then make them concrete by planting that exact plant out in the garden. So that's not so much that obviously that the relationship with the plants in the the unicorn tapestries is pretty straightforward and clear, but we have we have a really interesting palette of symbolism that we can draw on to. Yeah, it must be really interesting for museum goers too to be able to look at the painting or the work of art or the manuscript and then go into the garden and see the real thing, as it were. That's uh, that's the idea. I, in, in many ways, it's our most direct relationship, our most direct way of, of kind of interpreting or comprehending medieval life is to be able to look at the plants. The plants haven't changed. Mm-hmm. They look just the same they do now, mm-hmm. just the same now as they did, you know, five, six, seven hundred years ago. Right. Now, that's an interesting way to, to put it. You're you're new to the job, or relatively new. March isn't very long ago. Um, <laughs> Seems um, like a year, but yeah, right. And you mentioned that many people who held the position before you had quite different backgrounds. Some were historians, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What is your mission specifically for the garden at the cloisters going forward? That's a that's a really excellent question. And I think that if I had a really formulated pat answer to that, I would be doing a disservice to the institution and to my job. Right now, I am absorbing, I'm a sponge. I'm absorbing all this history, not only of the objects, but the history of the institution itself and the history of the, of the gardens themselves, because they've gone through many, many changes. So my first job here is to absorb that and try to come to some assessment of you know, where we are and where we have been. And of course, on, the, on that basis, then I'll look forward and say, here's where we're going to go. But so far, the most intriguing thing is how do we, how do we continue to build on that relationship between what's in the gardens and what's on the walls and what's on the pedestals? Mm-hmm. And I think that even though my predecessors and my colleagues have done a wonderful job, I think there's even more that we can do. Right now, it's just a presentiment. It's it's not a it's not a well thought out position on it's my part. It's a project going forward. Exactly, but but continuing to build on that so that people, so that so that our visitors are kind of nourished and excited and inspired by this two way communication between what's in the gardens and what's in the collections. I think we can go farther with that. That's how I, right now, I conceive of my job. Mm-hmm. I know that. See where we're going. No, that sounds great. I noticed that, and I think I even read this blog at the time that there is a very popular ongoing blog that happened between 2008 and 2014 called the Medieval Garden Enclosed, and it's all still online, so it's all archived. But it had. Botany, magic, medicine, medieval art, food and beverages. I wondered if you wanted to bring something like that back. It seemed like it had such a such a lively audience. We're actually in in discussions about that now. Uh, As you can imagine, our concern about continuing the museum's outreach and the museum's public role is at a height, and we're exploring all sorts of different ways of doing that. And of course, a lot of the ways that we're exploring about 
exploring that are digital. We are in the process of trying to revive those blogs in a couple of different ways and also to come up with new ways of communicating that kind of synthesis of gardening and art and history. Um, so it's a point well taken and uh, we haven't come to any final conclusions yet but there's just a ferment of activity around that right now and we're looking forward to rolling out some either similar programs or even more exciting programs. That sounds great but in the meantime um, our listeners can go to this um, I, I think it'll stay archived if I'm correct this medieval garden enclosed blog which is really mm-hmm. excellent. We just did a um, an online exhibit. It's the month of May, after all, May flowers. Um, we just did an online exhibit pairing flowers with rings. Speaking of pairings of, you know, art objects and and um, and gardens, um, and I discovered new favorite flowers through doing this. But I thought I might conclude by asking you if you have a favorite flower or short list of your favorite flowers. Well, I, I don't know how many gardeners you've followed around in a garden, but we are notorious for saying, oh, this is my favorite plant. And five minutes ago, like a faithless lover will say, oh, this is my favorite plant. Right. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're enthusiasts. I, I have to say that my favorite flowers have absolutely nothing to do with my job here at, at, at the Met Cloisters. I, I am in love with orchids and have been for a long time. And uh, although there are some terrestrial orchids that were used in the medieval time, they're, they're very difficult to grow, and I, I don't think we're going to have them in the collection. But I'm also, uh, I'm also a rose enthusiast, and of course the, the, the rose is very, very important in medieval horticulture, medieval gardening, and... I tend to like the species and the um, uh, heritage roses. So this is this is a wonderful place to explore that love as well. And you have roses in the garden. And, yes. And there is, after all, the famous medieval literature, the romance of the rose. Yes. So, okay, Mark. Well, I'm, I'm really, really grateful that you came and talked to us today. And I look forward to... As soon as the world reopens, visiting the garden, all three gardens at, at the Met Cloisters, and I wish you the very best of luck too on your on your new position. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and we will look forward to your return here uh, as soon as it's feasible. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. This has been a Laison Lumiere podcast. I'm Kristen Ragnello, editor and producer of the Laison Lumiere podcast. Our current digital exhibition, The Experience of Pairings, a May Bouquet of Rings, is an exhibition of historic rings that's now on view. You can experience unexpected and delightful combinations of medieval and Renaissance rings alongside complementary flowers. In other programming, every Friday, keep an eye out for Les and Lumineer's Friday Favorites, our newest online initiative highlighting favorite manuscripts, rings, and miniatures. These are candid, casual conversations with our experts, often recorded from the comfort of our own home offices. Thanks for listening. 